Hi, I'm Natalie. And I'm Christina. We're two best friend registered dietitians living their best lives in the beach cities of Los Angeles, California. We're here to serve you with evidence-based knowledge, a little storytelling, and a whole lot of laughs. And, and this, this is, is the, the Crunchy, Crunchy Dietitians Podcast. Podcast. Hello guys, so today is the first episode of three in a three-part series that we are presenting on the duality that currently exists in the dietetics field uh, around nutrition and weight. And today we have the privilege of speaking with Alyssa Callahan. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist with her master's degree in nutrition science from California State University at Los Angeles. She's a certified intuitive eating counselor, and she's the author of the Mindful Eating Journal. She's also the founder and CEO of Nourished with Kindness, where she specializes in eating disorders, binge eating, emotional eating, and body image in teens and adults. And we brought her on today to talk about intuitive eating and the health at every size movement, which is one side of this kind of duality that I mentioned. And in this episode, we discuss what intuitive eating is and health at every size and a lot of other great topics. Just to let you guys know and give kind of a warning here, a trigger warning, we do talk about eating disorders and things like obesity and overweight come up. So if that's something that is triggering to you, please skip this episode. If not, please keep listening on as I feel this episode has so much value and it was so much fun to record and really hope you guys enjoy. Hey guys, so we are back today for another episode of The Crunchy Dietitians, and today I'm so excited to introduce our guest, Alyssa Callahan, MSRD. So Alyssa is an intuitive eating dietitian, and I've actually known Alyssa for a couple of years, and we actually met when I was working in clinical at the hospital. And I remember uh, we were working at the rehab one day, and I was telling her that, you know, I'm, you know, getting ready to start a private practice, and I really want to be able to find, you know, an office. And she was like, shut up, I'm actually looking for an office mate right now we're splitting an office like me and my friend are splitting an office and we need a third person so I was like shut the fuck up like this is such a weird synchronicity (laughs) and so anyways long story short um, Alyssa and I ended up being office mates for a couple of years and um, so since then Alyssa has kind of gone off done her own thing and she's thriving in the intuitive eating world so um, Alyssa can you tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing now in the intuitive eating world Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, This is so exciting. Of course. Um, So glad to be talking to other RDs about all things intuitive eating and health at every size and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, we had that office in one location and then both that job and that office, I had to leave because my husband got a new job and we made the decision to move. And so we went to just another part of Los Angeles, honestly. So now I'm in private practice, sort of northwest of Los Angeles, and I run a group practice called Nourish with Kindness. And so we're all 
uh, intuitive eating and health at every size dietitians. We work with eating disorders, disordered eating, and just people who want to make peace with food or even people who have sort of nutrition needs or want to work on balancing their nutrition, um, but in a weight neutral perspective. So working on balancing, um, whether it's hormones or blood sugars or things like that, but doing it in an intuitive eating and weight neutral lens. Um, so we do that mm-hmm. as well. I love that. So just for our listeners who don't really know, um, how would you describe intuitive eating? That's a great question. So intuitive eating, you know, a lot of people get it confused with mindful eating, which mm-hmm. they're are components of mindfulness as part of intuitive eating, but there are actually 10 principles of intuitive eating. Um, So mindfulness, which is, you know, just kind of getting in touch with our bodies, listening to our hunger and fullness cues, that's one component of it, but also um, intuitive eating includes making peace with food, uh, rejecting the diet mentality. So this idea that you'll there are certain diets that we need to follow and that being on a diet is the only way to be healthy. Those are kinds of things that we work to address um, in intuitive eating, working on making peace with all kinds of foods, favorite foods, and really just kind of striving for balance and variety in our eating. They call it sort of a self-care plan for eating. And Elise Resch, who's one of the authors, um, describes it as intuitive eating is where instinct, emotion, and rational thought about food kind of come to meet. Like you include all of those components, our instincts of how we feel in our body, our emotions around food, because food is obviously emotional, right? We all have emotional connections to food, whether it's nostalgia or um, cultural emotions around food or you know like holiday food or comfort foods and all things like that so food is inherently emotional and just rational thinking so working on what thoughts that we have about food that are maybe based in fact versus other thoughts that might be you know coming from maybe maybe a source that's not quite you know real science Mm-hmm. I actually really love that because all three of those points that you made are just something that come naturally to us. But I think when we are so stuck in that diet mentality, we kind of push down that inner voice, you know, and we kind of push down those instinctual needs and the emotional and social and cultural aspects of food like you were talking about. So I think I think that's great. When it comes to haze, what how would you define haze? So health at every size fits in really nicely to intuitive eating, but it also kind of speaks to a larger movement of more just pursuing health and total well-being, mental, physical, emotional, without necessarily focusing on weight, um, that we can all work on our physical and mental well-being and our behaviors, and that what happens with our weight doesn't necessarily determine whether or not we're healthy Um, Mm -hmm. and that weight isn't, you know, weight's not a behavior and it shouldn't be something that is, you know, this major determinant of our health, which it's really infused itself into our healthcare system to a degree that I feel is not helpful, Um, Mm -hmm. particularly things like BMI, which are very flawed. And I'm always sort of wondering how, something like BMI has kind of like infused itself into our healthcare system to the degree that it's like almost more important than like some of our vital signs, which is kind of like, it's kind of silly and backwards to me. 
Yeah, it's um, almost like weight is like the number one thing that we look at when we're looking at, is this person healthy? Totally. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about BMI and why you don't like looking at it as an indicator of health as much? Sure, sure. So BMI, to those who might not know, is really just a, an equation of weight and height. That's all it's based off of. And it was developed like a hundred years ago by a mathematician, actually not even a physician or somebody who worked in health, to categorize research and to kind of analyze data. And it was research of white European men. And that was kind of the equation that he found. Um, And it was never intended to actually measure somebody's health. And it wasn't actually ever intended to apply to all bodies. Like, obviously, you know, men and women, like, our bodies are different. Like, also, Mm -hmm. also looking at races and genders and genetic predispositions to health. Those are some really good points. And then last, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything that you as a dietitian would kind of add to that definition of intuitive eating? Um, like, is there anything specific that you uh, do in your practice that you would want to add, add to that? Sure. Yeah. Well, actually going back to Hayes, there's um, standard principles. So there's 10 principles of intuitive eating, but there's also principles of Hayes, uh, health at every size, that have to do with self-acceptance and body trust and um, accepting size diversity. Also, a big part of of the movement is looking at privilege and how Mm. privilege and weight stigma affect health and the healthcare system. And I think looking at, and this is something that I I work on with clients is looking at, you know, weight stigma and how diet culture has really infiltrated our, you know, our ideas of wellness and health and what health means that we, a lot of us have internalized fat phobia that stems back from like, gosh, just like watching cartoons and you just like get images of, Um, different bodies and there's a lot of really damaging images of larger bodies out there even in like children's programming Um, and you know so looking at the ways that we've been kind of taught about you know I know you said this in a previous podcast Christina but you know Mm -hmm. that even Brene Brown said like the worst thing that you can be as a woman is fat you know and really just kind of like re-examining that idea of like, is this the worst thing that you can be is like in a larger body or at a weight that you, you know, might not be super comfortable at right now. Not to say that, you know, that kind of differs depending on the person though, because somebody who is naturally living in a larger body, that's going to be a lot more trauma for them to overcome because of the effects of weight stigma. You know, weight stigma, which is really prevalent, not only in culture, but also in the healthcare field. A lot of people experience a lot of trauma around weight stigma. And it's also rooted in like racism and obviously sexism, because as women, like our bodies are much more closely monitored (laughs) and Everyone has opinions about women's bodies out there, but also even um, in the LGBTQ community, their like body type is really, really closely scrutinized in those communities too. 
you know, likely out of trauma and just what it means to feel safe in, in different bodies when you're a marginalized community. Yeah. I mean, those are all some really great points. I'm honestly learning a lot from you already so far. Um, But yeah, no, it's really interesting. Like even like you were saying in the um, hospital system, I remember, you know, unfortunately you hear it from other healthcare providers as well. You know, like you'll be in the same room with a healthcare provider and you can, you can see it in the conversation. You hear it, you know, I remember um, one time I was with a patient and the patient was, you know, living in a larger body and I had a consult for obesity. And so I went into the room and, you know, I was just speaking with her and I was just saying, hey, you know, do you have any goals around nutrition? And she was she knew the second that I was there, why I was there. You know, this is something that she had experienced her whole life, I'm sure. And so she was telling me that, you know, she does have some goals. She's trying to choose some more, you know, nutrient dense foods. And she had chosen a, a turkey burger for lunch and she decided to portion it and eat half of it and save the other half for later. And I was like, that's amazing. Look at, you know, look at you. Just, you know, listen to your body's internal hunger cues. And then another healthcare provider walked in the room. It was a doctor, not saying anything about doctors, but it just happened to be in that situation. And I, he walked in the room and I was like, hi, I'm the dietitian, you know, I'll be done in a second. And then he looks at the turkey burger and looks at her and points and goes, that's not healthy and walks out of the room. Oh my and I gosh. Was like, yeah. I was like, Ugh. first of all, I apologize. That was extremely uncalled for and that was not okay. Um, and I was like, you should be very proud of whatever goals you have around nutrition and that you're trying new things and you're listening to your body. Like, please do not let that set you back. So I think you're right. We do all have some sort of internalized fat phobia because we we're seeing it from all these different places. You know, like like yeah. you said, it starts in childhood when we're watching these movies or videos or um, not videos, cartoons. So we're, we're getting these messages from everywhere. So it, it is very prevalent. Those are some great points. Totally. Totally. Yeah, it's it is very prevalent in the healthcare system. However, it's also just really prevalent in media and really prevalent in, you know, the way that we talk about food or the way that we talk about living, you know, mm-hmm. like as dietitians, it's almost like it's kind of a little bit of a joke in that like sort of after the first of the year like everybody gets a bunch of new referrals mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> as a dietitian, just the way that like everybody joins the gym, you know, and it's like, oh, this is the way that, you know, this is my year that I'm focusing on health. And how do we do that? Like culture tells us that the way that we do that is we got to get on a diet and we got to exercise. And, you know, that's just can be really damaging, um, you know, especially when those goals are, based around weight and based around, you know, kind of like following external rules of like, oh, this is healthy. No, this is healthy. And just kind of leads people to be really confused and feel really defeated. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think a lot of it comes rooted from shame. It's like we have this guise of health that we put over everything, but then underneath there's this layer of just shame (laughs) of like who who you are as a person because you don't fit into someone else's box. Not to say that weight is not necessarily 
a factor in somebody's health. Like just like maybe we could look at BMI in certain circumstances and use it as a general reference, but that's just one reference out of like so many and behaviors that we, you know, behaviors that we engage in every day add up over time. And that cumulative addition of behaviors is really what makes up our health and not the fact that we weigh a certain amount. You know, yeah. not that we get on the scale and it says a certain number, like, like, sure, maybe there's a range at which we feel our best and that's yeah. a range, you know, but I think the shame really plays a big role in it too. Totally. So, so how do we, how do we measure success with intuitive eating? If weight loss is kind of out of the picture here, how do we know that we're being successful? Sure. Well, well, back to what you said about BMI, it is sort of like, Yes, all of our bodies are, you know, kind of genetically predisposed to be at a certain weight. It's genetic. Our bodies, like our hair is meant to be a certain color and our feet are meant to be like around a certain size. And the same is to be said about our bodies. You know, like we think about the way that say like certain other cultures like do foot binding to make their feet smaller. And we think like, wow, that's, that's really extreme. But then the way that diet culture tells us like, oh, we should just be able to manipulate our bodies to be whatever size we think that we want to be. That's seen as completely normal. And actually, you know, that if we only just tried hard enough, then we would be exactly the size that we want to be. And, you know, that's, that's a lie, you know, just like maybe we could maybe we could like change our bodies dramatically from where we are living and functioning at our most happy, like fulfilled selves. But how long is that going to last? You know, like maybe some people can get to some quote unquote goal weight, but maybe they're miserable living yeah. at that weight because they're denying themselves of everything that they like doing in their life. They're, you exactly. know, over exercising, they're under eating or whatever, or they're, you know, they're not allowing themselves anything that they enjoy in terms of like food or maybe even movement. Like they think they have to do like hit or they have to like, you know, just push so hard. And it's like, is that really, really uh, what you want or like really how you want to live your life or is that really good for you like is that healthy yeah really think about that is it healthy just because you look really good in your bikini or in that little black dress or whatever you know is like is it really worth it <laughs> which you know because weight loss can affect our brains you know especially if we're doing things in maybe a disordered way like if we're trying to manipulate our bodies to get to a certain weight and we're using some restriction or abusing substances like laxatives or diuretics or we're you know using different eating disorder behaviors to be at that weight like our body's not meant to be at that weight we're gonna have to keep engaging in those behaviors to keep it at that weight and you know going back to your question of how do you measure success with you know intuitive eating is like well when you're engaging in behaviors to be at a certain weight what are the things that you're missing out on like you're missing out on enjoying your life and being present and honoring your body and being kind to yourself doing self-care and those are things that I'm used to measure success you know when they there's over 140 studies on 
on the effectiveness of intuitive eating. And, you know, we do see positive physical health markers, but we also see overwhelming positive mental health markers with intuitive eating that people are honoring their body. They're feeling better about themselves. Their anxiety and depression is decreasing. Their body shame is decreasing. You know, we're seeing a lot of really positive, just like people are being happier living their lives and you know what's healthier than that is like doing something that you actually feel good about your life and if you're doing a plan that makes you happy and makes you love life like that's a plan that's you know self-reinforcing because you're gonna want to keep doing it because you're happy versus like doing a diet that you feel deprived and like you have no energy and you can't go out with your friends because you can't drink, you know, whether or not you want to drink, you know, you can't have like even a mocktail or you can't have, you know, whatever they're serving at the restaurant, then what are you giving up on to get to like a certain body size or aesthetic? Is that really making you happy? A lot of times, you know, eating disorder behaviors are so isolating for those reasons and people end up more unhappy right yeah totally and I think that on the other side of that it's not to say that you can't make small changes to your dietary patterns to like maybe lose a little bit of weight or whatever in a mindful way that you're isn't like totally depriving you like I think there is a way that you could go about that that you can still go out and do the things that are fun to you but it is like a trade-off you have to understand that and you have to be in 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 the right headspace I think to and to not have obviously like just recovered from an eating disorder, obviously being going through an eating disorder to even begin to think about that kind of stuff. You know, if there was someone out there who was at a certain weight and wanted to lose like 10 pounds or whatever, you, I think that you, there's a way that that can be done in a sustainable, healthy way that that can be done. But I think for a lot of people, I can speak for myself, at least that is really hard to do without setting up all these rules for yourself. And then that becomes, even if it's not actually restricting, it becomes very mentally restricting, which is still restriction. And that can lead to binging and all different kinds of things for different people. And we see that a lot in diet culture. So, but yeah, thanks for answering that question. So it's like, you know, we can measure it with, with so many things, (laughs) like the scale is just one tool to look at one metric, but there's so many other things that we can be doing in our life to, be taking another step forward to joy and happiness and health. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the thing with intuitive eating that we always talk about is like a lot of people do come to intuitive eating with a desire to lose weight or like they feel like they've been struggling with food for a long time, feeling out of control around food or feeling like they're having kind of doing the weight cycling, the yo-yo dieting. Um, And so just because you know, I consider myself an anti-diet dietitian, it doesn't mean that we're anti-dieter or we're anti somebody who is really struggling with where their weight is right now. It's just that at that point, we want to kind of put weight on the back burner to heal the relationship with food. And yeah, you that's know, huge. And, 
and yeah, and work on healing our relationship with food because this is probably, you know, one of the bigger criticisms, you know, that intuitive eating or or health at every size get. Actually, there's a lot, but this is a yeah. big one. How is somebody supposed to be an intuitive eater if they have, you know, a, a chronic condition like diabetes? And so my response to that is always, you know, well, if somebody has a lot of shame about their condition or they have a lot of feelings about feeling deprived from certain foods that they're quote unquote not supposed to be eating because of their diabetes or they feel out of control around those foods or they feel like uh, I can't have those foods. If I have those foods, I'm being bad. And if I'm eating only, you know, vegetables and chicken breasts, then I'm being good. First of all, nobody can uh, living a life of a diet of you know, spinach and chicken breast is like Mm -hmm. so boring. Like, please don't do that. If somebody has like so many emotions and feelings of shame and guilt every time that they eat or, or thinking about what they're going to eat or what they did that day, like you can teach them about nutrition therapy for, you know, medical nutrition therapy for diabetes, but it's not going to stick because they haven't made that piece with food. And they haven't taken that kind of uh, emotion and shame and feeling deprived or being afraid of being good or bad. That is going to kind of get in the way of them making balanced choices because shame is a really big motivator and deprivation really affects us. Right. I think the food piece thing is going to always have to kind of come first, no matter what your goal is. If you want to lose weight, if you want to gain weight, if you just like the weight you're at or you anything, you you are struggling with an eating disorder, you are struggling with a chronic condition, you're just recently diagnosed, like you name it. It's kind of like if there's anything going on with you and your relationship with food, then that needs to be addressed. I think everybody could work on on their relationship with food in some way or another, probably. Most people. I think some people, it just comes more naturally to them, depending on how they were raised and stuff, their family dynamic and um, just their experience kind of growing up around food. But especially women, I would say, you know, most most of us probably have struggled at one point or another. I know. I know when I was like in grad school, um, there's, you know, assessments to that people take in the research for on intuitive eating to determine like whether you are an intuitive eater or what what aspects of it you struggle struggle with and I would always give the um test to my husband and he always just got like perfect scores as far as like he's a just a natural intuitive eater and I'm just like damn it man you know (laughs) I had to learn this. Like I had to go through all these steps as part of my healing process. And he just, yeah, it's so true. My fiance, he, he's like totally more of a natural intuitive eater than I am as well. Like, I feel like I've learned so much from him just watching his behaviors around food and his ability to stop when he's full. And if he's hungry, like he grabs something out of the fridge. He doesn't sit there and go, well, I can't eat. Cause you know, it's like nine 30 PM. It's like, yeah, but I'm hungry. So I'm going to have something, you know, guys don't really have that same pressure that women do. I mean, like Alyssa was saying earlier, we have all of those messages coming from literally every angle of our lives from the second that 
we even can know what the images on the TV mean or the second that we can read, we're seeing those words, we're seeing those visuals and images and characters in the stories and we're hearing the same thing when we see the, you know, magazine cover, like mm-hmm. how to lose 10 pounds or blah, 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 you know? Yeah. We're watching the peop- the woman in our lives struggle with it and I think it just has mm-hmm. such an impact on us. And it's just funny because it's like if we actually, like... I hear people say this analogy all the time, but when you have to pee, you don't go, oh, you know what? It's too early to pee. I'm actually going to pee in about five or 10 minutes because I just peed 30 minutes ago and that just doesn't make sense. You just say, oh, you know what? I have to fucking pee. So you go pee and it's just really not that complicated. You know, it just comes back to listening to your body. And also I think what you were saying about chronic disease and like MNT, medical nutrition therapy, that's a really great point because how can you actually you know develop an ability to manage your disease if you're stuck in this binge restrict cycle that's imperative that's the first thing that you're going to have to actually manage because how can you how can you decide what actually sounds good and then look at the portions for instance of carbohydrates that you're able to eat if you're if you're naturally depriving all day and then at night you want to eat all the chocolate in the world which i mean been there i've definitely done that before because i've been in that binge restrict cycle but I think, you know, that's a great point that having that relationship with food and not being stuck in that cycle is, is going to come first. Yeah. And, and learning to honor and, and trust our bodies. Like one thing that they always say is that we're all born intuitive eaters. Like nobody's like micromanaging the way that babies and toddlers eat and be like, oh, do you really need more milk? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think you are growing enough. That's you know? such like, a good, no. that is such a good point that this stuff is learned. Like this yeah. stuff is learned. This is not this yeah. is not inherent to like we don't just inherently want to sit there and eat the whole box of cookies yeah, you know there's a reason, there's a reason and there's lots of reasons and I think like <laughs> I'd love to talk about like how food companies make things taste really good with you know the right amount of sugar and fat and everything and like mm-hmm. we're gonna get to talking about sugar addiction and all that good stuff yeah a baby wouldn't sit there and get, and gorge themselves to being uncomfortably yeah. full or feeling like they need to throw up you know like that's not something that an infant would do so this mm-hmm. is learned because you know there's no other there's no other way right yeah, that we would that we would do that yeah it's all you know it's diet culture comes in and kind of messes with with our minds you know with chronic conditions, once we go through the making peace with with food phase, then I'm always telling my clients it's all about intention. You can go through any sort of health-focused behavior, like um, I wanna go for a run, or I'm gonna get, decide to, maybe I need to eat more fruits, you know, or whatever. And if you're doing it because you hate your body or you're feeling ashamed or you're trying to manipulate your body or you're saying I'm bad for eating eating chips so no more chips I can only have fruit as snacks or I'm bad for eating anything sweet so I'm gonna be I have to follow this really strict diet and you do it out of shame and guilt and hating our bodies, that's gonna be something that I would classify as disordered. Mm -hmm. Whereas you can say, hey, I wanna eat more fruit or I wanna start running more because you're like, hey, I really like running. I know that physical 
activity is good for me. You know, it's good for my body. It's good for my joints. It's good for my, my bones. It's good for my muscles. It's good for my mental health to be doing physical activity regularly. And it makes me feel good. So I'm going to go and do that. Or I'm going to have more fruit because I know that, you know, it has lots of vitamins and minerals and, and that's really good for me. And I'm going to eat fruits that I really like. Then that would be a completely positive change. And, you know, you can do the same actual behavior, but for two very different reasons. And one of them I would say would be like disordered. And one of them would be very much in line with intuitive eating, even though it's the same thing. It's all about your kind of mentality and intention going into it. So the same thing can be applied to like, you know, following a, a consistent carbohydrate diet for somebody with insulin resistance. You can be doing that because you're like, hey, you know, this is my body and these are the limitations of my health. And so I'm going to eat in a way that makes me feel good. And I know that it's good for my health. And I'm just going to try and be a little bit more balanced with it instead of I'm never allowed to have those foods. If I have those foods, I'm bad, you know? Right. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. Like where you're coming from with it, where's your frame of mind around this and what's your intention is going to, going to make the outcome so different because a, you're either, you're probably going to, not enjoy the process and therefore quit or, or, you know, like just say, fuck this. I can't do this anymore because I'm miserable or it's not even going to work for you, mm-hmm. you know, at all. So yeah, that's, yeah. I love that intention part. I think it comes back to the why. Absolutely. Um, so, so just to shift to kind of another question I have, um, in the nutrition world, obviously there, you know, is some controversy. Everyone has a different opinion about it. You know, some dietitians say that intuitive eating is just another tool in the toolbox, but it's not necessarily what everyone should be doing. There's other ways of Mm -hmm. doing things. Weight loss is still an option. So as an intuitive eating dietitian, do you agree with that? Or do you feel that, intuitive eating is the way that we should all be eating like who who is intuitive eating for and who is it not for I do believe that intuitive eating is for everybody because it's all about going back to our natural instincts listening to our hunger listening to our fullness incorporating movement that we actually enjoy and the 10th principle is gentle nutrition so there is always a model of You know, we have to have protein, we have to have fiber, we have to have grains, we have to have fats, you know, like there's nutrition is part of intuitive eating. It's just not the number one reason to eat something is because, oh, this is what is quote unquote the healthiest thing for you. You know, it's more about having balance and having variety, doing, doing those things out of, like we were saying, self-care and self-love, not because of, not because of shame. Right. Um, as far as limitations to intuitive eating, especially when you're working with somebody who doesn't have uh, hunger and fullness cues. Mm, that's a great point. So you do see that sometimes yeah. with your patients. Yeah, totally. Especially people who don't necessarily, their, their medications might take away their hunger and fullness cues. I see that a lot in people who are on ADHD medication. That'll really decrease your hunger cues kind of soon after you take them. And, and a lot of times then once their medication weans off, they're of course going to be so hungry so they haven't eaten much during the day because their hunger was suppressed. And then we see binging. But also in patients with 
you know, who have been engaging in disordered eating and eating disorder behaviors for a long time, you'll, you'll lose your hunger and fullness cues and it'll take them a while to come back. You have to sort of start with what we call mechanical eating first and kind of eat adequately just to kind of jumpstart your metabolism and get your body to a place where your hunger and fullness cues will return. Right. Mm -hmm. So mechanical eating, that's kind of where they're on a pretty rigid schedule and it's like, okay, we're eating at this time and they have planned out meal times. Yeah, usually I just give people uh, a certain, you know, three meals and a certain number of snacks and we discuss like what adequacy looks like Mm -hmm. um, for that. But honestly, you know, when I'm teaching, you know, principle 10, which is the gentle nutrition, a lot of times I'm teaching it very much the same to almost everyone. You know, there's, there's some small kind of changes depending on what people's medical conditions are. Of course, if people have allergies or intolerances to certain foods, you definitely have to take that into account. But I'm always teaching people about this is why we need protein. This is why we need carbs. This is why we need fiber. And this is why we need fats. And this Mm -hmm. is what balance looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of a baseline that I teach everybody. So in a sense of who is intuitive eating for versus not, I, I think part of intu- learning intuitive eating is learning self-care and balance and variety. And I think that that's something that everyone can benefit from. That's a good point. And I think it's really interesting. I'm glad that you said that you educate the patients about, you know, this is what carbs are for. This is what fats for protein and so on. Because I think one thing that I hear a lot from, from people that are not necessarily about intuitive eating is that they almost think it's like anti-nutrition, and, you <laughs> yeah. know, like I'm sure you hear that all the time. And I just oh, yeah. don't think that's the case. I mean, yeah. it, gentle nutrition, obviously it is a part of it, but it's not the main part. It's not the main focus. It's not just about physical health. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, totally. And I think people underestimate how much shame and how much false information there is out there. People who, who come to see me, no matter their age, what their weight is, what their financial situation are, a lot of people are really scared to eat a lot of different foods. And yeah. so for me, that gentle like that gentle nutrition education is absolutely essential because I have to teach people like just because you've heard that white rice is the worst thing that you could possibly eat that's not true thank you <laughs> and for this is why and this is what it means to pair carbohydrates with proteins and this is what it means to have fiber and this is how your body you know metabolizes all these nutrients and people are, are like oh so it's just i don't have to cut stuff out i just have to balance it out and it's like well yeah right and then in the act of balancing it out you're not going to be eating three cups of white rice by itself and it's not going to have such a maybe like not so good impact on your blood sugar anyway because you're going to be having maybe less white rice and pairing it with something else and you're going to feel super satisfied and full and like happy and not have to like stuff your face with it anyway yeah totally yeah you demonize food and you teach them the portions and how to do it in a way that actually serves their body best Right. And they can listen to their body. And if they are still hungry after they ate it, then you can have more. Like it's not also, it's also not bad to have 
to have a little bit of more food. And it's yeah, okay totally. too if you sit down to eat and you take a few bites and you're like, whoo, I'm actually like not feeling it right now. I'm like kind of full. It's like, it's okay. Yeah. I can, I can put it in the fridge mm-hmm. and I can eat it later. Like that's okay too. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't have to finish my plate right here, right now because it's time for dinner at 6.30 PM. <laughs> totally. And there's, it's, there's so many people don't check in with their bodies before, during, and after meals at all because yeah. that's not what diet culture tells us to do. Diet culture says eat the least amount that you can all the time. Right. Diet culture says you can't trust your body because your body yeah. doesn't know what it needs because if you do trust your body, then you're just going to keep gaining and gaining and gaining. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, people lose their what we call interoceptive awareness, they lose their attunement to their hunger and fullness cues. And so honestly, like that's what I teach my, my clients is like checking in with our bodies and why it's important to have all foods. And, and, you know, to your point before, like how, how to add these foods, how to add in a variety of foods that actually supports satisfaction and fullness, you know, like people don't understand that like fiber and protein and fats all help us to keep us full and satisfied and they taste good and it gives us a variety of nutrients and that's what our bodies and brains want anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. Love it. Love it. All right. So how do you manage body image and the desire for weight loss at the same time? Like, is it possible to follow intuitive eating and also maybe desire weight loss? I think absolutely. A lot of people come in and they still have that that idea of of wanting to lose weight, um, which obviously we can understand because they want to be healthy. And diet culture tells us that weight and health are the same. And so we kind of have to, A, go through a dismantling process of what is what does that mean what does your weight mean to you also what does health mean to you and what kind of like untangling them and also like trying to honor the part of them that wants to be healthy or honor the part of them that is influenced by diet culture and might not feel safe in their body at a particular weight particularly if they're experiencing or they have experienced weight stigma and trauma related to weight stigma we kind of have to examine okay what what's going on with our desire for weight loss and kind of look at it in a neutral way and and take it apart and decide what parts of it maybe are things that we want to address and other parts are maybe we we have to sit with some of the discomfort and process, you know, work with a therapist. Like almost every client that I work with has to work with a therapist because of how intertwined a lot of our issues are with things like trauma, you know, and obviously as a dietitian, you know, I can a little bit, you know, talk about how trauma affects our brains, but I'm not somebody who's trained to help clients necessarily process trauma. Um, So (laughs) I always want my clients to be working with therapists if we feel like that would be most helpful to them because weight stigma and also different traumas that they've experienced around their body, sometimes even sexual trauma is a very common one that Mm -hmm. people experience that makes them feel very unsafe in their bodies. Um, so we have to kind of examine what's going on with their desire for weight loss, what it means to them, and then kind of approach it. Um, so it's more of like, how do we examine this and how do we 
be kind and nurture ourselves and take care of ourselves while, while we're going through this healing process, both physically and emotionally. Right. So it's kind of, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of unpackaging and it's a very therapeutic process. And then, you know, after all of that has happened, then the person can decide, is weight loss still something I would like to pursue? And if so, it, it is possible. It sounds like it's just like, there's a lot that kind of comes before that kind of like when we were talking about with the making peace with food before any of those other steps. Yeah. So, so awesome. So then I guess another question that we could pivot kind of off of the first one is, so is it possible then for someone who is obese to be healthy? Totally. Sorry. I was giggling because my dog was barking in the other room and my husband was <laughs> we, yeah, we, and we could hear him. <laughs> Sorry about that. Little cutie. Little cutie. Yes. Cameo. Yeah. yeah. She made a little cameo. She, she has a lot of opinions about this particular question. Um, <laughs> she's passionate. Yeah. She's, she's very passionate. She wants um, to uh, weigh in. Ha ha. It's actually, it's funny because there's a really um, great video out there by the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health called Poodle Science. I don't know if you guys have ever watched it. It's a great video. It's so good. Oh my God. I'm going to link it in the show notes because it's so good. I love that video. Um, And uh, it talks about like poodles and like a starved mastiff isn't a poodle and my dog's part mastiff. So she has a lot of opinions about (laughs) body size. I love love that. that. I can't, I can't wait for Christina to watch the video. I know, now. I need to see Oh my it. God, it's great. Yeah, it's really good. Um, so yes, it's definitely possible for someone who is obese to be healthy. You know, as we talked about before, like BMI has a lot of limitations. And, you know, a, a great example that I give to a lot of my clients is The Rock. You know, like his BMI is probably, you know, in the like morbidly obese category um, because his weight, his weight to height ratio is probably in that category. Um, But that doesn't mean that he's not healthy. Actually, even if he wasn't the rock and have the level of gym support that I'm sure that he gets <laughs> and like personal training hours that he has to devote to maintaining his physique, he's still probably in a body that's prone to being muscular, probably kind of has that broad shouldered, you know, that's his genetics. I think his, he did a great podcast with Oprah that I highly recommend. He's very inspirational and I love him. Um, but I'll have to check that out. You will. Yeah. It's really good. It's, um, forget which one of her podcasts. Um, but it's amazing. He's an amazing person. His life story is like incredible. But his dad is actually was a professional wrestler as well. So he's just really genetically probably predisposed to being a very muscular human being. And we could all probably eat and work out like the rock. I mean, I would never want to because I don't like being in the gym that much, but we could all do the same thing. And we're not all going to look like that because he's, he's genetically predisposed to having a lot of muscle mass. So, you know, BMI has a lot of limitations around, you know, it doesn't, uh, what what is the word that I'm thinking? It doesn't, um, it doesn't take into account uh, body composition and yeah, like muscle mass and the distribution of, but, but what about, so what about individuals that we know have a higher adiposity or a higher, you know, amount of fat on their body. Sure. Well then 
from the idea of health at every size, you know, from the uh, lens of health at every size, then why can't we focus on the behaviors? Because weight's not a behavior and it's not something we can control, you know? Like there's a lot of other factors that go into our weight, including privilege. So why don't we focus on health behaviors, like incorporating regular movement we enjoy, making sure that we're getting proper medical care and getting the, you know, getting on any necessary medications, not smoking, like engaging in health promoting behaviors. And instead of necessarily saying, oh, just go on a diet and lose weight, regardless of what, whether that's A, sustainable, B, enjoyable, C, just contributing to their shame and feelings of guilt about their body. Why don't we look at you know, what behaviors can we incorporate? And also like, you can't, you know, back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, there's also a huge component of people who experience weight stigma by trying to access medical care and how that affects some of the research that we've, you know, we're always seeing these studies about higher BMI correlates with this and higher BMI correlates with that. And you know, correlation does not equal causation. And there's also, you know, it doesn't account for whether there's other factors going in there. Like there may not be looking at whether people are engaging in behaviors and that's a different thing from weight and whether people are, you know, have access to things like medical care or going to a gym, whether they've experienced weight stigma, you know, people who have a higher BMI are less likely to seek regular medical care because of the stigma that they've experienced in the healthcare system. So a lot of times when they do seek healthcare, they're sicker than, you know, somebody who's, you know, of a normal BMI. So there's just a lot of factors that go into it. And just having somebody come and ask for help and, you know, having a plan that fixates on weight loss as opposed to health promoting behaviors, then if they incorporate these health promoting behaviors, but they don't lose weight, then it's still, you know, a quote unquote failure, but it actually may be helping them just as much regardless of what their weight does. Right. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this like cycle, right? Like it seems like it's like a cycle, like you for whatever reason are now overweight or you were have always been overweight and so you feel the stigma and you don't want to go seek medical care but then when you do seek medical care they just don't listen to you as a human they just hand you a piece of paper tell you to go on a diet and that you need to lose weight and that's why you have all these problems or you know for whatever reason you came in to get care for they don't actually address those they just tell you to lose weight because that'll solve all your problems And so, you know, you try to go do that and you're not successful because, you know, most of the diets out there that you follow aren't going to (laughs) work. And so then you feel like you're a failure and it's just this cyclic thing um, Mm -hmm. and you're not really ever getting you're you're stuck. Yeah, because you're they're just measuring one thing and and that's not like you said, the weight isn't something that you're just going to go and change right now, like snap of the finger, but I can snap my fingers and get up and do jumping jacks or go for a walk or pick a orange instead of a cupcake, you know, like, I don't know. They're just, you know, there are things that we can do right now that could change our weight or could not, but that definitely will have an impact on our health and ways that we maybe can't measure, but maybe ways that we 
feel like we could feel better. We can feel more energized. We can feel happier. We can feel like we want to socialize more. And, um, I don't think that those are any less of a success than you losing weight. Yeah. Well, I think also the bottom line is that if we center the discussion around weight itself, we're just further reiterating that shame cycle. Rather, if we focus the conversation on those health inducing behaviors, we're actually like kind of opening the cycle and providing an alternate route, you know? Like somebody's not gonna be shamed into doing something. It's just, that's never gonna work. It never has worked and it never will work. And if it has worked, it's because you're going down that unhealthy path. You're being driven by something negative, a negative force, and that's never gonna keep you in a place um, that you need to be, you know? So if you are focused- It's never gonna bring you to a positive place. No. Exactly, and that's that's the only thing that's sustainable, is doing things that make you feel good, that make you feel light. So if you are, if the doctor comes in and says, you know, how, you know, do you have any goals around nutrition or do you have any goals around exercise or, you know, things like that. If they kind of center that conversation around providing better for you alternatives, then it kind of, they can leave the office feeling a little bit encouraged or excited, or, you know, maybe there's something new that they can try with their family or just opens the door to something new um, and provides opportunities rather than, you know, continuing on the same thing that we just know doesn't work. Right. And then weight is kind of like this byproduct. It's like, yeah, sure. Like, let's not even focus on that. And I, I guarantee you, if you just work on your behaviors, weight might just start falling off. Exactly. It might not, but it might. That's the only thing yeah. that would actually help is the right. behaviors. Right. And then it's yeah. just kind of like the cherry on top is like, yeah, you might lose some weight too. How cool. Yeah. <laughs> if totally. that's what you want to do, you know, like, sure. Yeah. It, it, we always say it could happen. It could not happen, but success isn't measured based on that it's how you're feeling because you know if somebody comes in who's binging a lot you know like we're gonna work on the binge restrict cycle and are they gonna lose weight maybe depends how much they're binging um but i don't have any control over that i certainly am not gonna promise it and i'm not gonna rate their success on what their weight's gonna do I want to heal that part and work on talking about balance and variety and making peace with food and all of that, as opposed to hinging their success on weight. But like if somebody is using certain disordered behaviors or they're not engaging in certain healthy, health-promoting behaviors, it's possible that weight might change, but I, I don't have control over what their what weight their body wants to be, and neither do they. Right. And so, promising like oh do this and lose weight will also kind of like make them think that oh it's I have to do this to and keep doing it to get to uh, my quote-unquote goal weight which might be completely arbitrary and not actually be the healthiest weight for them like the weight where their body is actually healthy and thriving you know yeah and I think you know in a situation like that also like you you always have to you know, first start with the most prominent issue. Like at that point, weight's not even the issue. You know, if they're engaging in a destructive behavior, you know, something that's harming them, like binging, like psychologically, that's a very harmful behavior. That's the thing that you kind of want to focus on. And like you said, weight is then secondary. So I kind of want to segue now that we're talking about this. So, you know, a lot of people have these, you know, you hear it all the time about being addicted to different foods. And I think sugar is one thing that we hear about a lot. You know, people think, you know, sugar addiction is a thing or why do I feel so out of control around foods? What would you say about that? So 
The research on sugar addiction is, I think, flawed. It's kind of like, you know, are we addicted to carbohydrates? Well, yeah, our brains are addicted to carbohydrates because our body, our brains need glucose to function. Right. And when we're not eating adequate carbohydrates, like our brain's gonna crave carbohydrates because that's what our brains need to mm -hmm. function optimally, right? Like that's why obviously the big uh, craze right now is keto is one of them anyway. And people go to, on keto and then they get the keto flu, which is like, you know, their brain <laughs> is mad because there's hypoglycemia basically yeah they like get hypoglycemia just, yeah. their brain they their bodies hate being in ketosis so then they get the keto flu and they can't keep the diet and then they feel shame and they feel deprived from carbs and all of that and so is that like are they addicted to sugar I would say no. I would say they're deprived of carbohydrates, which their brain needs to function. And also the science of deprivation, you know, like if we're, we know in our brains, it's like somebody telling us like, don't think of a pink elephant. If somebody's telling you, you can't eat sugar, you can't eat sugar. Like as soon as you see sugar, like a, a sweet food, you're gonna be like, oh my God, it's like the forbidden <laughs> fruit, you know? Like it just makes you want it that much more. Something that's really interesting that intuitive eating teaches us is like our inner diet rebel is like our, our the part of us that like is wanting to rebel against diet culture and is like, oh, you think that I can't have this thing? Well, I'm gonna have it and I'm gonna have the whole thing. You know, like there's, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if that's something you guys ever experienced. No, I totally. literally ate a pint of ice cream the other night. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it still happens. It happens to dietitians. It happens to everyone. Oh, totally. I mean, I think, you know, that's just a part of being a human being is like, we do still have these internalized ideas that like, oh, maybe like, you know, when I get the ice cream, I don't have a problem like getting ice cream and allowing myself ice cream, but I'm definitely like, don't eat the whole pint. And then so when I'm sitting with the pint, I eat the whole thing. You know, like it just happens. <laughs> And so I'm curious, do you think like in a hypothetical world, if diet culture was not a thing and we didn't have these rules in our head, even if we don't say that, oh, I'm on a diet or, oh, I can't have this or, oh, I'm not eating that. And we like generally eat a you know, balanced variety of foods, even as like an RD, for example, do yeah. you think if we lived in a world where diet culture just totally didn't exist, we could sit down and have like a couple bites of ice cream and put it away and we'd be totally satisfied off that? Or like, is it only because the external rules exist that then we internalize and tell ourselves while we're eating it, you know, while we're eating the cookies <laughs> or whatever it is, right? Oh, well, I should only have a few of these, even if we're just saying mm. it to ourselves in our heads yeah. and we're not like voicing it to the people around us, or even if we're alone on the couch doing this, like, do you think in that circumstance, this would not even be a question? Well, I mean, to me, it comes back to thinking about the way that we ate, like as kids before diet culture came in, like if, you know, I just remember eating certain things and I liked certain things and I didn't like other things. And like sometimes like when we were making, I remember like a specific <laughs> instance where we were making sugar cookies at Christmas, which is like the best. It was like the most fun you would have all year, right? And I remember eating so much cookie dough and so much frosting <laughs> that I felt so sick after. And it was just like, okay, well, that's a situation that it's kind of like you 
you as a little kid you touch something hot you get burned and you learn not to do it again <laughs> like yeah you we we would go through time periods of like enjoying a food and sometimes we would overdo it and sometimes we would not eat enough of something and have to come back for a snack later and like but we didn't have like that shame I didn't go into a shame spiral because I ate so much frosting that I almost threw up like right. I just was like oh this was why my mom says maybe don't eat so much raw frosting it was more of just like a raw like loving learning experience of like oh okay that kind of was like not fun for me so I'm just gonna not do yeah. that again it's like so casual whereas like there's so much negative like emotions attached to it when we're an adult we're like oh my god I can't yeah. believe it how dare I like I'm a terrible human yeah, like I'm a bad person I'm a bad person like to my core because I ate that get, whole I'm pint end up being unhealthy I'm gonna get diabetes like yeah like, that's how harsh the rhetoric is and like that's that learned. didn't occur to me when I was like 10 and I did right. that you know like I was very lucky that I I was not, you know, made to feel that way. That's not something, you know, my mom was just sort of like, yeah, well. You learn. That's why you don't, don't do that. Do it again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at this point in my life, it's honestly the sheer, the sheer issue of having the gastrointestinal consequences is the yeah. thing that yeah. just keeps me away from it. Because let me tell you, Same. that kind of ice cream, it was fucking delicious, but I was up at 2 a.m. and I was not thriving. I was not yeah. feeling my best. Yeah. And I was oh feeling it yeah. the next day, but exactly. it was good. And I, you know what? I'm not going to lie. I didn't even feel bad about it. My stomach did, but um, emotionally, I was in a good place that's that like, gentle nutrition of like okay right. you know like sure it was like a nice experience and it was delicious but was it was it worth me feeling like yeah, this right. afterwards and maybe like, I was maybe a, I could have had half the pint right but maybe I was in an emotional place that day where I right. needed to eat the where that pint, served you in a way know? and that that's okay you. because it did and sometimes it's okay that food plays that role because yeah. sometimes oh, sometimes your mom plays that role sometimes a, a drive plays that role sometimes a run yeah. plays that role and sometimes food plays that role and that's okay Okay. And so I did suffer the GI consequences, but mentally and psychologically, I was perfect. I like that because yeah. that was going to be kind of another like side question that I wanted to ask is like, is it okay that that served you that purpose of Hell like yeah. being emotionally because yeah. I, I know a lot of people will be like oh you don't use don't use but food for shame. emotion yeah. right again that's like you should call someone if you're feeling sad or go on a walk or journal like, what or whatever that person isn't in an emotional state where they can hold space for me or they like have the capacity you know what I mean like when or it's that raining and I'm not gonna much. go for a walk or like yeah. I don't feel like writing or I'm you yeah. know whatever yeah. like, like, like I feel I'm like there's not... no right or wrong it right. just totally. is what it is and totally just, yeah there's this there's this stigma right now again like emotional eating which you know sometimes it's just another word for binge eating but people don't necessarily know it not to say that you binge at all but like mm -hmm. emotional eating is seen as like this super negative thing and it's like well yeah. we all are emotional about food like mm -hmm. when we're babies you know we feel an uncomfortable physical sensation p.s it's hunger and then we cry and then you know Elise Resh, who's one of the co-authors of Intuitive Eating, one of my mentors, tells this great story. You know, then we cry and then, you know, we get a parent who comes over to us and, you know, or a caregiver. And then we get the bottle or the breast. We get food. We also get a cuddle. We feel connection. We feel comfort. And we're feeling food. So from day one, food and comfort and connection are integrated. And so, mm -hmm. like, can't say that 
just never have an emotional connection with food. Never turn to food when you're emotional and you're looking for comfort. Well, no, that's ridiculous. Just yeah, unlearn everything your that... Number one tool and yeah. your only tool in your toolbox? Like... Yeah, right, exactly. Like Maybe not the number not. one tool, but like unlearning everything that you knew as a baby is literally like the only thing you knew. Why all of a sudden that's just not acceptable any longer? You can't untie food from all of the things that it inherently is. Like it is yeah. emotional comfort. It is a social thing that we do with other human beings. It is something that we enjoy in our cultures or traditions. Like you just can't untie it from that. And I think yeah. that's what diet culture does. Is People it do though. Yeah, exactly. Untie it from that. Say it's it just tries, fuel right. and it's but just. But it's not. Like right. that's one part. There's one. Part, there's, sure, it is fuel. But, but like, that's one part of it. And right. you can't yeah. untie it from the inherent what do I want to say like roots there's like roots yeah. in all of those things and when you deny one of them you like deny yourself like you deny your basic needs as a human being and that's kind of fucked up yeah totally that's like absolutely saying that you shouldn't have a warm bed to sleep in at night or something or that like you can't brush your teeth or yeah yeah and like Maslow's hierarchy of needs when we're not meeting our food needs like we're not going to be able to meet anything else right it's like right. food and like you're saying, shelter and fluid and safety are like kind of at the base of that triangle, right? Yeah. Like yeah. if we're not getting adequate nutrition, then like the rest of it kind of doesn't matter. The emotion side of it is we're always going to have an emotional connection with food. Like even as adults, like you were saying, like we go, what do we do? Like pre-pandemic to connect with people we have them we have them over Happy for dinner. Hour. we go out to eat we go get ice cream you know like yeah we we have food at, at like a lot of our holidays our food holidays like mm -hmm. revolve around food like there's mm -hmm. no way to take food out of this it's in, also inherently enjoyable kind of going back to the the sugar addiction question it's like well whenever we eat food we get happy brain chemicals because that's our body saying like good job human you ate food you're staying alive like the same way that water tastes really good when we're thirsty that's our brain like if water doesn't taste better that's our brain just being like good job you're dehydrated and you're doing the thing to fix that problem you know that's why food tastes better when we're really hungry but also like we sh shouldn't have that shame about enjoying all foods either like we don't only watch educational tv that enriches our intelligence like sometimes we just watch shows that are really enjoyable we don't learn anything <laughs> like you're allowed to enjoy shit you're not line. you're not a machine you're not no, a computer not cars. <laughs> we can have pleasure in life and that's such a important part of like what makes life worth living you know yeah, yeah. and so. it doesn't all have to come from food but food can be a pleasure and just Absolutely. give yourself unconditional permission. I feel I found that just that simple act of giving yourself unconditional permission takes away so much of the expectation of what we have to do, which is really the driving force that causes us to engage in those kind of harmful behaviors. Yeah, totally, totally. And when we have that unconditional permission, then, you know, we don't go into a shame spiral mm -hmm. and, you know, we don't feel we can just like we don't feel bad and then enter into a binge restrict cycle we kind of had like the night that you described of like okay well that maybe didn't make me feel good physically but emotionally I did feel good it served a purpose and now we're moving on exactly and the next day. day you have your regular breakfast and you move on exactly 
So how would you, Alyssa, define clean eating? Because that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. For me, I think the cleanest eating is, you know, definitely washing your produce <laughs> to get it really clean. I would, that's, I would recommend that type of clean eating. And, Love it. But, but the type of clean eating that you're referring to is just kind of like feeding into this idea of there's good foods and there's bad foods and, and in a way that really gets us into the, the shame and the guilt mindset. And because you're right, like it does make people feel like if I eat a bad food, I am bad and my health will be bad. You know, like we internalize it so much. So many of us do kind of like going back to maybe my husband, he can just eat a food that maybe he doesn't, he knows that it's not the most nutrient dense, but he enjoys it. And then he's like, okay, well, maybe I just have more of something nutrient dense the next day or at the next meal or whatever. And, but he doesn't internalize it. Like I'm bad. And I did a bad thing the way that a right. lot of us really do. Yeah, right. Because if there's a, a way to eat clean, then that implies that there's a way to eat dirty. Yeah. And I guess going off of that, like, would you say that there's a place that the less nutrient dense foods can fit into somebody's dietary patterns if they are trying to make better choices or like lose weight, let's say taking clean eating out of it, but just talking about what we would maybe put under a list of good foods and then put under a list of bad foods. I know that all foods fit in intuitive eating. So if someone mm -hmm. was wanting to make better choices, it's just a matter of not feeling guilty or shame after that choice, right? It's just like, mm -hmm. do it and move on. And there's a place yeah. for it, like it's okay. Yeah, it's all about variety, right? Balance yeah. and variety is the name of the game. So right. all foods fit because carbohydrates turn into glucose, amino acids come from proteins and fatty acids come from fats and all raw food turns into that anyway. And so we want to pair foods and, and create balance with that. But this idea of a food being bad, you know, like a, a bad food would be, I would say, be a food that you're allergic to. Poison. Besides that, we can have <laughs> some balance and variety because if we're just eating just one type of thing over and over and over again, that's, that's not healthy. There's no food that is as dangerous or as harmful to your health as an eating disorder or anxiety around food. So here's a, a follow-up question on that, Alyssa. Um, yeah. how, do you, how do you feel about, in regards to intuitive eating, eating foods that are considered diet foods or foods that push forth that messaging of calorie-free or low-calorie or low-fat or, you know, how mm -hmm. does that fit into eating intuitively? I guess to me, it comes back to like intention. You're just having something that like, say like having low fat milk or skim milk. If that's the milk that you like, like who am I to tell you, you have to have whole milk or you have to have this milk. Like, you know, it's up to you. If, if you're enjoying it, then it's your part of balance and variety. If you're, if you choose to have skim milk, well, I hope that you're doing it not in a, negative mindset and not for a disordered reason and I also hope that you're getting fat from another source. So like say someone likes skim 2% and whole milk and they think well you know skim milk might be best for me so I like them all I'm gonna choose that one like how does that fit into that would that be okay in the landscape of intuitive eating? 
Yeah. If it, you know, it's it's all about your intention. There's no rules in intuitive eating. So if you're just doing something that makes you feel good, makes your body feel good, and it's not out of body hatred or deprivation or anything like that, then you have total autonomy. Whatever feels good to you is what's okay, as long as it's not, I guess, harming your health in some way. You're doing something out of like restriction. I like that. So it's just kind of coming back to those intuitive needs of your body. I think a lot of intuitive eating, I mean, it is intuitive. So it's just coming back to, you know, knowing yourself and and listening to what something feels like in your body, not just physically, but like emotionally and on all levels. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a process. I mean, I've, I've read, I've read the book and everything and I've, you know, worked on it myself and stuff. And I think that for me, it's the best way to go about having a relationship with food is really really trying to practice intuitive eating and Mm -hmm. you kind of do have to go through this phase of like feeling crazy for a little while with for me it was like around sweets there's you know this unconditional circumstances where I can have kind of like whatever I want and I had to go through a phase of feeling like oh my god I felt like I was overdoing it, but then I got you kind of yeah. level out eventually because eventually totally. you're not going to go like weeks or months of binging on sweet shit. You're going to literally get ill. Like yeah. it will make you sick. And then eventually you're like, oh my God, I never want to see that pint of ice cream again. You're you know, gonna and then shit. you're going to feel like shit. And then you're going to, and then you're going to be like, I don't even want to see it. And then yeah. some more weeks and maybe months will go by. And then you're like, oh, okay, like maybe like I'll have a little bit of this now. And then you eventually get to a place where it feels like it doesn't have this power over you and you can just enjoy it when you want it and feel satisfied. And, you know, sometimes that's in, in an emotional way and you do have the whole pint. And other times I just stand at the freezer and take like two bites and put it away. Anyway, yeah. I went on a little tangent there, but. No, no, I love that. <laughs> that's so great that you were kind of able to go through that process and, and that process, which you call is, is, is called habituation. And, you know, I just describe it to people as like, say you're from somewhere like me, I'm from New Hampshire, like somewhere cold. And then you go somewhere warm and sunny. Like you come to Southern California in the middle of January. And then you're like, okay, every day we have to go to the beach. And you're just like, go to the beach, go to the beach, go to the beach. And, you know, after a while you're like, I like the beach a lot still, but like, maybe I want to do something else today you know like yeah, kind of like right. at first it's so exciting it's like a new song that you love and you listen to it over and over and over again and then you're just sort of like well I do like other songs you yeah. know yeah your senses eventually like if they're stimulated with the same thing over and over and over you're gonna eventually just be like it almost becomes annoying you know like if someone scratches yeah. your back in the same place like over and yeah. over and over at first it feels really good and then you're like okay I'll stop like now it's just yeah. annoying <laughs> you know yeah. it's like it's yeah. kind of like that for food it's called sensory specific satiety and it's why one of the ways that we you know we do crave variety and what we eat is that if you keep eating something you know sweet after a little while like it's you're, it's not going to taste as good right. you know either because a you're not as hungry or b because your taste buds want something else and that is designed by our brains and our bodies to make sure we get variety because our bodies need various nutrients to survive we need protein we need fat we need carbs we need vitamins and minerals right we don't just need glucose we need all the things we need need all all of them yeah we need all of the macros and the vitamins and the minerals yeah exactly exactly so okay so second to last question um what the hell is intuitive fasting 
Um, so <laughs> we are looking at your note and we love it. You can I like need yeah, you to say that. You need to say it. I have to say my note. You literally have to say it. I wrote that it's a crock of shit. Uh, yeah. Sorry, um, Gwyneth. Sorry, not yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah it actually, um, if you look at the Gwyneth Paltrow post about the book, Elise Resch, who's one of the authors of Intuitive Eating, gave a really amazing comment back, and I shared it on my story, but it's you know, mm-hmm. obviously gone now. I was like, what a class act. Can you give a little synopsis of how she oh. replied? Basically, she was just saying, like, this is ripping off intuitive eating, which has been around for 25 years, and intuitive fasting is, for those who don't know, it's a book that is coming out, and it uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was promoting it, um, and a lot of people from the anti-diet community got um, a little miffed, I would say, because fasting is, is not something that I would say is necessarily intuitive unless you're fasting while you're sleeping at night and I would say that's pretty intuitive but that's intuitive fasting right there that you do it when you sleep (laughs) but you know fasting like coming up with uh it's basically an intermittent fasting program that they say is more mindful and and I don't I don't understand that I I think that the research behind intermittent fasting and keto are really the medical research is not there so it just it drives me absolutely up the wall with how many of my clients say that their medical doctor has recommended keto or or intermittent fasting yeah. which has just really no research on actually it making you healthier in the long term. In fact, ketogenic diet being developed for children with epilepsy, you know, they're really careful about the kids that they keep on keto because they don't know the long-term effects of eating such little carbohydrates and such high protein and fat ratios for long-term life. You know, they don't have long longitudinal studies on that to my knowledge. And so why are dietitians or or doctors or therapists or other health wellness practitioners why are they recommending those those ways of eating when there's not any evidence. Right. Yeah, totally. So lastly, we have one more question. We just want to know what are the critiques that you hear that are most rampant about intuitive eating? Like what do you, what kind of feedback are you hearing from the critics and how do you sort of counter or answer those questions? Sure. Yeah, of course. So I think a lot of, a lot of criticisms we've kind of touched on and I feel like it's a lot of just misunderstanding. Like people just see the name, see the the phrase health at every size. And it means that every person can be healthy at every size. And that's not what it's saying. It's saying that you can pursue health at every size and you don't have to change your size to be healthy. And that's a big one. You know, and that's that's a that's a big one. And with intuitive eating, you know, I, I used to be like you, Christina, I'm not sure about you, Natalie, but I used to be a clinical dietitian and we see a lot of people with a lot of dietary restrictions because of their medical conditions and they think that, you know, some dietitians or some healthcare professionals think, oh, we can't do intuitive eating because, you know, you can't incorporate medical nutrition therapy into that. And as we discussed earlier, like, I, I think that that's wrong and you can actually do a lot with balance and 
and variety and making changes around these are the foods that my body can handle and these foods my body doesn't do so well with for whatever reason, whether it's a GI symptom or whether it's, you know, it makes your sugars go up or, you know, and those are all things that make us not feel very good. And if we're focusing on taking care of our bodies and fueling our bodies so that they function really well and make us feel really well, then then we can make these changes um, in a really positive way without then thinking that we're bad if we go against it or like Christina eating the ice cream then having some GI upset. You're not bad, you know, like you didn't do a bad thing. I think the only other um, real criticism that I hear a lot is really around, and I do think we touched on this, kind of around the, the research um, around, you know, the o, the O words, obesity and overweight and how that affects, you know, longevity. And, and we kind of talked about how weight stigma also, you know, keeps people from seeking healthcare, which can definitely increase their rate of getting sicker. But I think that we also need to talk about privilege and how that is part of the equation as well. Like I, you know, when I talk to my patients, because I have a lot of patients who are like, I understand this health at every size thing in theory, but they get held up on certain parts. So we talk through it. And so one kind of thought that I had was there's a really good article on this um, by Christy Harrison, who does the Food Psych podcast. It was about how they were at the beginning of COVID, maybe, you know, it was towards the beginning, they were starting to come out with all this research and data sets about how higher BMIs mean that you are at higher risk of dying of COVID. Did you guys ever read those? Um, I didn't read them, but I, I did hear a lot about that. Yeah. So like, For me, like thinking about that, that's just kind of like different data sets kind of thrown together, like BMI being one of them and COVID deaths. But I was like, well, what other things are we seeing that like, what are other factors that we're not looking at in this research? Once we think about COVID and what was happening, you also have to think about, okay, well, there's certain people who couldn't stay home. They couldn't work from home. They were frontline care workers. They worked in grocery stores. They worked in drug stores. They worked in pharmacies. They worked in gas stations. They had to go in in person. Um, And often those are people who they're working hourly, right? And so that could also speak to, you know, their income level. And also they can't, so they can't stay home. They're working hourly. They're putting themselves in harm's way and increasing their risk of catching COVID. And a lot of times when you're in those hourly jobs, you might not have healthcare benefits as part of your work. You know, especially if you're getting minimum wage or a low wage, then you don't have probably very good access to the healthcare system. Um, also, sometimes, you know, if you're making less money, you might have to work multiple jobs. I'm not trying to like make any big judgments or assumptions, but I was just like in thinking about all of these things. Like, and then if you also are low income and you don't have amazing health benefits, what about what does that say about access to food? What does that say about access to going to the gym on a regular basis? Maybe you also have a higher BMI going into it, so you've been experiencing weight stigma and so you're working, you're exposing yourself more, you have a higher out-of-pocket probably with accessing healthcare. Like these are people who are also maybe going to be slower to accessing healthcare because if they're going in in person and they can't take days off, 
then they aren't taking time off to go to the doctor. Like, do you guys see what I'm saying? Like, there's yeah, like all these other factors. They're saying that correlation is causation. They're saying, oh, yeah. these people died from COVID and they were also obese. Okay, that's great. What about all the other 75 yeah. characteristics of the people that we just ignored? Yeah, exactly. You know, like, why aren't we... They don't want to talk about that. Right, they just want to yeah. say, look, it's because they were overweight or obese. And, and that is yeah. weight stigma. Yeah. In a nutshell. And there's, and there's also racism and classism and all of that. It's an yeah. uncomfortable conversation, but honestly, thank you for shedding light on that because I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about. And I think yeah. it, it, we can talk, we can have that same conversation with so many different things, like including other disease states, yeah. type 2 diabetes, heart disease. Like We can do a podcast on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like <laughs> access to the healthcare system, access to food. Do you live in a food desert? You also probably have like time poverty. You know what? Like, do you live in a neighborhood that's safe for you to walk around outside, or do you feel unsafe to even just like walk around in your neighborhood? That's yeah. sometimes a factor for people. Or do they oh, have absolutely. parks nearby their house where they can take their kids to go play, or or not? And now with COVID, oh it's gosh. like a whole nother world, like where kids and families have been cooped up inside and. Yeah, and then maybe and they can't, you know. I mean, there's lots of free things you could look up on YouTube and stuff, but then the time factor still does come into play. Yeah. We can't just assume things about other people's lives. Like, we have no idea what they're going through. We have no idea where they've been. We have no idea what their mental health is like, what their home life, personal life, career, anything. Oh my gosh, um, totally. Just because we have it a certain way, you know, we are seeing it through our lens. Yeah, exactly. So when when we're, when people are you know, talking about health at every size, promoting this and promoting that. It's like, well, we're also trying to recognize privilege and that life doesn't look the same for everyone. Like I come from a lot of privilege. Like, you know, I think even coming, becoming a dietitian often shows a certain level of privilege, right? Because we have to work mm-hmm. for free for a while. <laughs> oh yeah, you know? absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you kind of have to have that like realization and that not everybody is looking at this through the same lens. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was such a, a good conversation and I appreciate you being open-minded and talking through all of these, all of these issues. Well, thanks Alyssa. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Chat all right, talk care. to okay. Lady Sam. Okay. Hey guys, well, thank you so much for listening to this really special episode. Um, we just wanted to let you know where you can find Alyssa if you wanted more information on intuitive eating and health at every size. You can find her on Instagram at Nourished with Kindness. You can also go to her website at nourishedwithkindness.com and tune into our next episode of the three-part series. We will be interviewing a dietitian on weight loss. See you then. within this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding any changes to your dietary pattern, a medical condition, or your overall health and well-being.